Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening. We thank you for letting the rain light it, let up a little bit, at least, since so we can get in here without being drowned before we get to it, or we, we might be out there for 40 hours or whatever. Anyway, so we thank you for this time together, and we ask your blessing on our efforts. Help us to understand what you are trying to tell us through Holy Scripture. Open our minds and our hearts to see a different side of things than we have been accustomed to. So we give you praise and thanksgiving in all things, in Jesus' name. Tonight we are going to be studying uh, or discussing chapters 11 through 13. And I have made out a schedule, uh, and I hope you've picked it up, uh, which looks something like the one we used last week, so don't confuse them. Uh, they are in somewhat the same format, but we're not we're going to do something a little different than we did last week, where we took uh, each of the three groups in that order and discussed them all the way through. <clears throat> Tonight we're going to follow pretty much the book, okay, uh, for a variety of reasons. But before we do that, I want to set the scene so that you are aware of what's going on in this time frame that we are talking about. Because when you study scripture, you can't just open a book and begin to read and expect to put it in the proper context and understand what the writer is saying unless you know what the scene is and what led up to it. Is that clear? You have to really understand where Christ is, where the apostles are, and what's going on at the time. Okay, all right, I, I forgive you. <laughs> all right. At this particular time, Jesus has been teaching now for some time. You know, we don't know for sure because there are no dates. This is not a diary. The Bible is not a diary. So we don't have any specific dates. But we can understand from the various things that, we, that we've already discussed that Jesus and his apostles, along with the disciples and woman, women followers, have been going along, particularly in northern Israel, or the Galilean, Galilee area uh, at that time, uh, for several months, perhaps a year, year and a half, maybe even close to two years. And now, as it told us in chapter 9, we are starting his journey towards Jerusalem. And when I say journey, uh, I don't mean, you know, a vacation trip. I'm talking about the sort of the main point of his mission. The main point of Christ's mission was to die for the remission of sins of all mankind. But there was a lot of work that had to precede that. One is that he had to start teaching and preaching and gathering disciples 
and then appointing out of those disciples 12 apostles who then became the nucleus of the church hierarchy. And now he's on his way towards Jerusalem. Of course, that would take several months, uh, not because it was such a long ways away, roughly 80 miles or so, but because he would stop and preach and teach in various little towns on the way. But the thing that was happening now is that the people were really gravitating to him, particularly those 5,000 or whatever the number really was who were fed uh, with the seven loaves and the few fish or whatever it was, and the, the other recipients of his miracles. They began to develop this following, this wonderment about this itinerant preacher. Preachers in those days were rather common. There was even one um, some quite a while before Christ whose name was also Jesus. All right, and you hear about that in the Acts of the Apostles. So itinerant preachers were rather common at this time, but this one was different. He could work miracles. He could do things that no other preacher had done before. But what was that doing to the people who were running the temple, particularly the Pharisees and the Sadducees? It was making them extremely nervous and a little irritated. And so tonight, when we go through various passages of the scripture, we'll see these challenges that they are trying to throw at him one by one in order to trip him up or to get him to uh, talk against uh, the Mosaic law. And what Jesus does is sort of turn the tables on them. He's pointing out where they are not following the Mosaic law as they should be. And what is worse, they are leading the people astray by saying one thing and doing something else. Yes, sir. No, no. Yes, but remember, there was only one temple at the time of Christ. Actually, from the time of David to the time of Christ, it David was the one that made the rule that there would only be one temple, and that would be in Jerusalem, and there would that would be the only place that they could offer animal sacrifice. All of the other places were synagogues, and that's true today. You may see Temple Bethel or, you know, Temple this or Temple that. Technically, what we have today are synagogues, not temples. And the difference is, one, the temple in Jerusalem was the only place that really was considered the house of God. The others were houses of prayer. <laughs> and it Synagogue, and that's the difference. Synagogue is a house of prayer. However, since the time of Christ, since actually the year 70 AD when the temple was destroyed, never to be rebuilt, there could be no more temples of that kind. And so everything else now has become a synagogue. Big difference. 
for the Jewish people. But they've sort of dealt with it by ignoring it. You know, and they do call a number of their synagogues temple this or temple that. All right. So what we're getting at here is a very antagonistic attitude. There's a lot of um, tension between Christ and his followers and, G and the temple rulers, particularly the Pharisees. All right. So let's get into that. But before we do, we want to talk about prayer because prayer is one of the most important methods of communication. And what I've, and the first three chapter, first three uh, sections of chapter 11 is devoted to prayer. Uh, and Jesus is really talking to his disciples, which include the apostles. Remember, Disciples include the apostles, but not the other way around. When he's talking to the twelve or the apostles, it does not include all of the others as a rule. There can be some minor differences. But keep in mind also, you as a follower of Christ are a disciple. Thank God you're not an apostle. Okay, but you are a disciple and therefore when the teaching is where Christ is teaching his disciples a lot of people have a tendency to say well he's talking to somebody that lived 2,000 years ago that doesn't pertain to me and that's not correct you are a disciple you are today's disciple okay the bishops of the church are today's apostles. And the structure is still the same. The church is run by the head apostle, the chief honcho of the bishops, the pope. And he is pope only because he's the bishop of Rome, not the other way around. Yes? Well, there was always, there was, David had a temple, but it was in a tent. All right? But it was an official temple. It held the Ark of the Covenant, and that was the nucleus of what the temple was all about. All right? It wasn't until Solomon, David's son, who built the magnificent temple, the, the made and the first temple of the Jewish people. And that lasted until uh, five the year 587 B.C. when it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Okay, all right. Uh, it was partially rebuilt, and then, um, which was called the Second Temple, and then it was totally rebuilt uh, at the time of Herod the Great, around the year 43 B.C. All right, the Lord's Prayer. You have the Lord's Prayer both here in Luke's Gospel and in Matthew's Gospel. Um, there are a few word differences, but essence is the same. And this is a good example where we have to look at the message rather than just the words. Okay? You asked that question here a few weeks ago. All right. <clears throat> so what I'm doing is I've taken... 
And I want to go through uh, line by line because I think it will give you a different understanding of this prayer. I'm using the version of the Lord's Prayer out of Matthew's Gospel rather <clears throat> because it's the one that we are most familiar with rather than Luke's Gospel. But essentially they are the same. Now, we've all said this ever since we were children, but do we really understand what we're saying? And that's true with so much of our Catholic faith. We learned it as children in elementary school, but many of us have not, never had the opportunity to bring it up to an adult level of understanding. But the Lord's Prayer is one of the purest forms of prayer. It was sort of composed, you might say, by Christ himself. And it was to honor not only the Father, but to recognize our relationship with the Father. So when we say our Father, we don't mean yours or mine alone. We are acknowledging that God is our Father, which then makes us brothers and sisters of each other. And yet we don't always look at it that way. We go to church, particularly on Sunday, we receive the body and blood of Christ, and we walk out and ignore everybody because we can't wait to get out to the liturgy of the parking lot. Be the first one out. We even sometimes leave before the Mass is over. Unfortunately, what we're doing is really ignoring all of the things that we sometimes profess to believe in. I don't want to belabor the point, so let's go on. Our Father who art in heaven. Heaven is not a place. You know, like this is a room that is next to the church. It is a place, a physical place of being. Heaven is not a place. Heaven is a state of being where God is present in all of his glory. And we acknowledge that he is supreme over all things and in charge of all things. See, I asked and prayed that it wouldn't rain. No rain out there for the moment. Hallowed be thy name. Well, God doesn't have a name. God has a title. Jesus has a name. But we're talking about the Father. The Father does not have a name. Yahweh is not a name. Yahweh is a title. All right? So what do we mean? And we've talked about this before. <clears throat> in biblical terms, the word name when used in this context, means the whole person. The whole person and character of God. So, when we're talking, for example, um, the third commandment, it used to be on the back of this board, it isn't today. The third commandment for the children was, was written down, um, thou shalt not take of the name of the Lord thy God in vain, 
and then dash it means not to swear or use naughty words or words something to that kind. That's not what it means at all. It means that we should not take God in, in for granted. Because when we take the name of the Lord in vain, we are actually chastising God. And you, you know, you just can't do that kind of thing. So, hallowed be thy name, is we are acknowledging the holiness of the person of God. Thy kingdom come. If we acknowledge that God is Lord, remember the Jewish people would never use the word God, or they would never use the word Yahweh out loud. That was so sacred that it was forbidden to be used in conversation. Okay? So that is how the word uh, Lord came into being. Uh, in Jewish, uh, it was Adonai, meaning Lord or ruler over one's person. If I acknowledge that God is my Lord, what I'm doing is acknowledge him as ruler over my whole being, everything I do, say, and think. We also acknowledge when we say thy kingdom come, meaning that we acknowledge our own final end and our judgment before God, which is something a lot of people just don't think about, and we should. Thy will be done. Since God is our ruler, God made us, he has given us a small portion of his plan of salvation to accomplish something that is specifically or peculiarly ours, then we should actually honor his whole being. And through this statement, we place ourselves in his care and in his hands willingly. On earth as it is in heaven, in other words, what we try to do is to become perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And that doesn't mean perfect in looks or perfect in an earthly sense. It means perfect in a spiritual sense. If we do everything that we possibly can in accordance with the will of God for us, we can then feel that we are striving to be perfect has nothing to do with uh, our looks or necessarily our actions on earth, but they cannot contradict each other, obviously. So, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We try to um, mimic or, or use the angels as examples. Here's the one I really like to teach because so often people do not understand it. Give us this day our daily bread. Bread in the Jewish culture is a symbol of life, both spiritual life and earthly life. When a Jewish person enters your home for the first time, if he or she is uh, particularly an Orthodox Jew, 
they will often bring a loaf of bread because it is a sign of a gift of life, giving life to the new house or the new place that they have entered for the first time. Even if you buy a new, or a person buys a new car or has a, a new child or something of that kind, it acknowledges the newness, particularly in life. All right. And of course, it means both temporal as well as spiritual life. So when we say, give us this day our daily bread, we are really saying, give us a portion of your life for this day. That change the meaning a little? Give us a portion of your life for this day. And we take one day at a time. Then we petition God, forgive us our sins. For we ask forgiveness for our sins, offenses, and omissions. And at the same time, we say, as we forgive those who have offended us. When you put those two together, we are asking God to forgive us, but only to the degree that we forgive others. And if we are holding a grudge or a resentment or something against someone else, you want God to hold a grudge or a resentment against you? No. No. So keep that in mind. I had a young man in uh, one of my classes many years ago. We got into quite a, a, a dis, disagreement, dis, well, disagreement or a debate on this particular subject. And he said, I have an acquaintance that I have been angry with for years, and I will never forgive him. And I said, well, unfortunately, God is telling you that you must forgive him. I will not. I will not forgive him. And I said, why? Well, because he did such and such, and I expect him to forgive, to ask my forgiveness. And I said, well, that might be a cold day and you know where uh, before that happens. Um, and are you going to let that bother you? Are you going to carry that baggage all these years? Because you're the one that is stewing over it. He probably doesn't even remember what the incident was. So why don't you make friends with that person or at least bring it up, talk about it, and try to resolve it then you relieve both of yourselves of that baggage that you've been carrying around. And then this might fit. No, 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 no. Never saw him after that. <laughs> you can only do so much in these classes, you know. <sighs> okay. Here's one that a lot of people don't quite get. In the, in the Matthew version, it says, lead us not into temptation. Well, God will never lead you into temptation. It's unfortunate that the English translation uh, came out that way and has never been changed. But it really means, do not subject us 
subject us to the test of the evil one. Okay? But give us the grace to withstand temptations of all kinds from the evil one and from our own weaknesses. You can't blame everything onto the devil. Okay? We are all weak in one form or another, and that can often cause uh, sinfulness or laziness or omissions or whatever that can become sin. And so what we're asking is the story. Don't blame it on the English translation. No. Okay. All right. Um, Yes, it does. (laughs) All right. Now, at that point, most of us say amen. But our Protestant brothers and sisters, and even in our Mass today, there is a pause, there is a a priestly prayer, and then we say something similar to, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. That was tacked on much, much later. It is not in any of the Gospels, but it was added by the early church fathers, uh, we believe, around the second century A.D., all right? And it was picked up by uh, the followers of Martin Luther during the Protestant Reformation and was added on to the Protestant version of the Our Father. There's nothing wrong with it. If you want to say that and add it on to your private prayer, that's fine. So, uh, and that's why I put a little indication there between those, because this is something that was added on later. So the Our Father is something that is extremely uh, important. It becomes part of almost all of our liturgies, and that is because it was Christ himself that uh, composed that, that prayer. Let's turn your page over and talk about prayer in itself. This first paragraph here, this first paragraph is copied right out of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And it says, Great is the mystery of faith. The Church professes this mystery in the Apostles' Creed, and it celebrates it in the sacramental liturgy so that the life of the faithful may be conformed to Christ in the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. This mystery then requires that the faithful believe in it, that they celebrate it, and that they live from it in a vital and personal relationship with the living and true God. Underline the word relationship, if you would, please. Because this relationship is prayer. In other words, what it is saying is that we derive from Christ himself the essence of spiritual life. And that is done through prayer. If we go a little further now, prayer is the raising of one's mind and heart to God and or the requesting of good things from God for oneself or for someone else. That's from the old Baltimore Catechism. 
That simple definition says nothing about time or place or physical position, but it does say that prayer requires two important components of our being to be involved, the mind and the heart, together. One without the other is not prayer. You can be rattling off prayers from now until kingdom come, but if your mind is not really on what you're saying, that's not prayer. Or you can be praying and know what you're saying, but if you don't really believe it or you don't really want to say it because it's coming from your heart, that is not prayer. Or if you're uh, suddenly... Um, surprised or uh, shocked and you say oh my god that's not prayer it's not wrong but it's not prayer um, or something happens that's nice and you say oh thank god for that that's okay nothing wrong with it but it's not prayer prayer is when you deliberately intentionally spend even if a few moments or time with your mind and heart together communicating to God. Think about what it is you are asking for. William's question is valid. If you pray for something, whether it's for yourself or for someone else, and your prayer is not answered, then continue to pray because at the end of this passage in the Bible, it talks about persistence. Continue to pray or review what your prayer is. You know, if you're praying to win that $76 million lottery because uh, your grandma needs it, uh, I dare say you're out of luck, first of all, because 15 other people already won that. But secondly, that is sort of highly unlikely. So you've got to analyze what you're praying for. okay? And make sure, remember, all of this is being directed to Christ's disciples. Meaning that he is talking to people who are already committed to him. And people who are already committed to him will not pray for things that are way out of God's plans for you. Yes, William. Well, and you got a good point. In fact, a couple of good points in there, distractions, uh, which I want to talk about. Um, but never play your prayers down, meaning that they weren't good enough for God to answer. Because remember, God knows what you need and what you're going to ask for in detail far before long before you ask. Okay. Let's address the, the distraction part. We are all bothered, I'm sure, at, in our prayers by distractions of various kinds. In fact, I've even caught myself falling asleep, uh, which, you know, is... But think of it this way. If God is sitting there with you, or in an easy chair, and you're in another chair, whatever... Think of God being there with you. Think of anybody being there with you and you're carrying on a conversation. 
would you fall asleep right in front of them? No. Um, well, <laughs> I, I take that back. Some people, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, in fact, I just told somebody not re long ago about a given person that uh, talked so much that I fell asleep right in front of her one time. So forgive me for saying that, okay? But distractions can be a problem, and distractions really uh, are part of, you know, the devil's work, too. Uh, but one of the things that I would like to suggest is that you all consider taking, if, if you haven't done this for a while or have never done it, taking maybe five minutes, being alone, being prepared to be alone for five minutes or so, and spend it just in talking to God. It doesn't have to be a fancy conversation. It doesn't have to be saying the Our Father over and over and over. That's not what I mean. I mean converse, talk to God, and then see how it goes. And then if you find that you're comfortable with this, and don't just expect to be comfortable the first day, the first time you do it. It's got to take time. But spend five or ten minutes, particularly in the morning when you're fresh and so forth and ready uh, for the day, and then spend that day, that time, asking God for the grace and the benefit uh, that you need to really uh, carry out your day in accordance with his holy will according to the prayer of the Our Father. Okay. Now, distractions. One technique that is very helpful, if you have a particular place that you are going to make your prayer chair or whatever, then put either a candle, a lighted candle, or a picture of Christ. Uh, it doesn't have to be any particular kind of picture, but a picture that represents Christ to you. Or a particular, maybe a crucifix. Something that you can focus on, and as your mind drifts off into other non-essential prayer things, you can focus on this object to bring your mind back into what you're supposed to be doing. It really works. It really helps. Let's go on because I want to get through this and go on to the other subjects. <clears throat> Prayer is the universal method of communicating with God, Father, Son, and or Holy Spirit, the Trinity. The celebration of the Eucharist or the Mass is the highest form of prayer in that it involves the offering of the body and blood of Jesus Christ to the Father in thanksgiving for the Father's acceptance of the divine offering of the Son on our behalf. Unfortunately, if we do not participate in this celebration, that is the Mass, daily, then we are not communicating with our God daily. If we spoke to our spouse or our children only once a week, or worse, as some people do, only at Christmas and Easter, 
what kind of a marriage or relationship would we have? And therefore, daily prayer is a necessity for a close and healthy relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Daily in prayer involves setting aside a specific time and place to be alone with our God, and this should be a dialogue, not a monologue. In other words, we should be speaking and listening, not so much with our ears, but with our heart. During this time, we can use prayer books, or the rosary, the Bible, or other sacramental forms suggested by the church, but our own words and thoughts are the best. The Liturgy of the Hours is a great form of daily prayer that has been used by religious and clergy for centuries and is now used by many laypersons. Lexio Divina, which is a specific form of the Liturgy of the Hours or of a prayer form that is used by some contemplative religious orders. And what it is, is it's taking certain portions, certain stories of the Bible and placing yourself into the story and see what happens in your mind and in your heart as you uh, form uh, your own version of that story with yourself included. Let me give you an example of Lexio Divina. You're all familiar with the story of uh, Martha and Mary the two sisters that uh, were very close friends of, of Jesus, and he would spend time with them and their brother Lazarus uh, because they lived uh, not too far outside of Jerusalem. All right, the story is, <coughs> I think it's in this gospel here, where Jesus is with Martha and Mary. It doesn't say Lazarus is present, but Martha is busy cooking and getting ready for serving and so forth. And Mary is sitting there listening to Jesus talk. And Martha gets a little upset and says, Lord, you know, make my sister come and help me. i got to do all the work. And the Lord says, no, you're busy about many things, and that's all right. But she has chosen the better part, and it's not going to be taken away from her. All right, now, supposing you put yourself into that story, and you are a guest of Martha and Mary along with Christ. Which side would you take? Who would you sort of be with? Who would you drift towards? Martha and the cooking and so forth or in Mary listening to Christ? And how would that affect you? And what would the outcome be? Etc. That's what Lexio Divina is. Putting yourself into um, into the scripture story and kind of recreating that story to fit yourself and to hear Christ speak to you. Okay. Lexio Divina means the divine lecture or the divine reading. Yes? I can understand that and I'm glad to see that with that Mary and Martha because quite frankly somebody's got to do the cooking and the dishes and everything else. You know? <laughs> You hear that? No, he said the reads. I can read everything, and I'm doing all the work. Honestly, though, you know, I really have been able to get with that one because it sounds so unfair to pull all the work. Well, you know, she 
she chose it, she could have just sat there and listened to him too. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, yes. Over the years, of course, our liturgies uh, change. And right now we are going through a rather uh, relaxed or casual way of expressing our uh, worship. But that doesn't mean that we are changing the basic content. Okay, uh, The church has always recognized those three forms of prayer, but within that, uh, the execution has changed a, a little bit. Now, as far as repetitive prayer, the rosary is not said simply to get them get Mary's attention. The rosary is said as a repetitive prayer for a higher purpose. You have a, a new kind of of uh, similar prayer called the Chaplet of Divine Mercy. That is repetitive prayer, but what you're doing is you're offering a, not only your time, but your mind and your heart to Christ for a specific reason. And it's not the repetition that counts, it's the reason and what you are offering that counts. So we have to move on though, because otherwise we're, yes, Gail? Yes, yes, I think that's a very good point. And Maria, I don't know whether you heard Gail, uh, but you're right. And the church looks at that story as being a representation of the active life, Martha, or the spiritual life, Mary. Okay. And you're right. At sometimes you are in one category and sometimes you're in another. And that's kind of the balance, I think, that Maria was recommending. Well, that, that's because, that's because the sermons are all by men, you know. Yes, stuff. Well, in the rosary, you might have a lot of repeating Hail Mary, but you know, Christ spent his time still meditating on the mysteries of the world. That's right. Yes, yes. It's not just the the repetition that you're going through. It is what you're offering in addition to that. Okay. Uh, let's move on because uh, we've spent more far more time on this subject. Not only is it good, but it uh, has taken up a lot of time. Towards the end, the, uh, the last secular prayer uh, paragraph here. Praying is often said to be the way our souls are refreshed, such as in the saying, praying is to the soul what sleep is to the body. So the question is, if your body only got one hour of sleep a week, how long would you last? Your soul is no different. I want to go through um, some, uh, we don't have time to get through all of this, but I want to get through as much as we can to show you how particularly the antagonism towards Christ is growing. In the three years that he preached in public, in the three years that he traveled around from north to south and east to west, 
Christ was welcomed with open arms in the beginning because, first of all, he was preaching things that the average person of his time, particularly the poor people, didn't ever get a chance to hear. And then he backed it up by miracles. So the people were drawn to him out of curiosity uh, as well as a better understanding of a lot of the Mosaic law. Remember, Christ didn't teach a lot of different things. He taught things that were primarily out of the Mosaic law. And what he tried to do was to condense the Mosaic law from all of those little things that weren't allowed. And you've got to keep one thing in mind when we talk about the 613 laws within the Mosaic law. Many of them were not ever intended by Moses to be forms of worship. They were intended for practical use, for health and education, uh, hygiene, etc. Uh, but over a period of time, they became forms of worship. And, for example, uh, you couldn't work on Sunday, uh, or the Sabbath day for them, that was Friday night to Saturday night sundown. And if you did, you know, you had to go through all kinds of rituals to get back into the good graces of God. Well, who's to say what the good graces of God really is or was at that time? So you had to go show yourself to the priest and it, it just became so burdensome. And Christ said, a lot of that isn't necessary. If you narrow all of that down to two laws, love of God, love of neighbor. But remember, when we talked about love, and there's a diagram back on that table back there if you forgot, that love really isn't intended to be affection. Love is intended to be respect for the dignity and the person of God as well as the dignity and the person of the human being that you are dealing with. And that is what love really is all about. Let's go on to this section here on page 80. Jesus and Beelzebub. There's two ways of pronouncing that, with a B on the end or the L on the end, okay? And I'd rather do it for the L of it. Little humor doesn't hurt once in a while. <laughs> Betty gave us a good beginning, so. <laughs> he was driving out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute person spoke. And the crowds were amazed. And some of them said, ah, by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he drives out demons. See, this is the challenge. This is the tension that is coming particularly from the Pharisees. Others, to test him, asked him for a sign from heaven. Now here he's been working all of these miracles and doing all of these great things, and they're still asking for signs. But he knew their thoughts and said, every kingdom divided against itself will be laid waste, and house will fall against house. And if Satan is divided against himself, 
how will his kingdom stand? For if you say that it is by Beelzebub that I drive out demons, if I then drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your own people drive them out? You see, there was a ritual within the Jewish culture. There is a reference to it in the book of Leviticus about driving out unclean spirits and demons. And that, of course, Beelzebub was the name of one of the principal demons, not Satan himself, but, you know, they had a litany of names for demons, just like we have a litany of names for our saints. Okay. And also in more modern um, times, uh, Beelzebub was uh, very prominently uh, written into as one of the characters in Milton's uh, book, Paradise Lost. Okay. So what Jesus is doing is turning the tables on these people by saying, if you think I'm driving out these demons by this evil spirit, then who do your own people drive them out? And of course, they can't answer that. So if one of strong and fully armed guards his palace, his possessions are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away the armor on which he relied and distributes the spoils. So whoever is not against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That bothers me in, in, a, in another sense because I've had people challenge me because of my knowledge of a few things about the Bible. And uh, they like to put the Catholic Church down, calling the Pope uh, all kinds of uh, unflattering names and so forth, and uh, the church in general, the Whore of Babylon, which comes right out of the book of Revelation. And so I take this phrase right here, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And I'm saying, how would you interpret that against what you have just accused me and the church being and doing? So the point I'm making here is we can never, never put down another Christian faith or any faith for that matter simply because we don't accept it. Because the point is, if these people in whatever other faith there may be that you are faced with are sincere within their understanding then they are worshiping God according to their understanding. And they should be at least given respect for that. So you'll never catch me putting down somebody of any other faith. Because I feel that's counterproductive. Yes, Anna? Including Jews? Including Jews. Oy vey. <laughs> That's right. Even though Jews, you know, what you should be doing is praying for them that they get the light and not criticizing them or criticizing their faith. Remember, the Christian faith, the 
Catholic faith or the Christian faith stands on the foundation of Judaism. So we can never put that down. Now, you have a lot of other what we call Protestant denominations. They all break off from the Catholic faith at one point in time. And even them, we cannot put them down because they were once part of us. And we have to feel a little bit sorry because they decided to leave the mother church and go off on their own, which of course is like a ship without a rudder. Let's go on. There's some major points in here that I really want to get to before uh, I run out of time. On the next page, they're asking for another sign. Um, This is kind of an interesting story here. It says, while still more people gathered in the crowd, he said to them, this generation is an evil generation. So you can see Jesus is not really trying to make friends and influence people here. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. What was the sign to the Ninevites that Jonah represented? No. No, unfortunately, that is there, but only after you kind of understand the rest of the story. Okay. Um, Yes? All right. Well, yes, but there was more to it than that. You had a prophet go to a pagan territory and preach repentance, which Dee just said. What it is the whole idea of the prophet going to a pagan territory and preaching repentance and they listened and repented. Okay? What Jesus is saying here, as he says there is uh, at the end of that, <clears throat> at the top of the next page, and there is something or someone greater here than Jonah. In other words, Christ came to preach to the Jewish people and they turned against him and eventually killed him. So the people of Nineveh were actually more receptive to the words of the prophet than the Jewish people were to their own Messiah. Yes, Frank? Well, that happened centuries before. Nineveh was the was the temple. Uh, I mean, the capital of the Assyrians back in the eighth century B.C. That's when that happened. Okay. Uh, we talked about the simile of of light and salt here a week or two ago. Okay. <clears throat> I want to go over to uh, the denunciation of the Pharisees and the scholars. Again, Jesus is not really making any friends or influencing people here. After he had spoken, the Pharisee invited him to dine at his home. 
he entered and reclined at table, which was a big no-no for a Jewish person. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not observe the prescribed washing before the meal. The Lord said to him, O oh, you Pharisees, although you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, inside you are filled with plunder and evil. And he's talking about the individual, not the uh, dishes or silverware. They didn't use silverware in those days. <clears throat> you fools, did not the maker of the outside also make the inside? But as to what is within, give alms and behold, everything will be clean for you. Woe to you Pharisees, you pay tithes of mint and of rue and every garden herb, but you pay no attention to the judgment and to the love for God. These you should have done without overlooking the others. Woe to you Pharisees, you love the seat of honor in synagogues and greeting in marketplaces. Woe to you, you are like unseen graves over which people unknowingly walk. Boy, he's digging his grave a little deeper. Then one of the scholars of the law said to him, Teacher, by saying this, you are insulting us too. And he said, Woe also to you scholars of the law. You impose on people burdens hard to carry, but you yourselves do not lift one finger to touch them. Woe to you, you build the memorials of the prophets whom your ancestors killed. Consequently, you bear witness and give con consent to the deeds of your ancestors, for they killed them and you do the building. And therefore, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles. Some of them they will kill and persecute in order that this generation might be able and might be charged with the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who died between the altar and the temple building. You notice anything unusual about those two names? The Sanhedrin is like our Congress. It's made up of different political parties. You had, um, and I just knew somebody was going to ask me that, so I wrote them down here. You had the Pharisees, which was the ruling party. You had the Sadducees, which was the next one. You had the Herodians, which were those who favored Herod as the king, but not many people did. You had the Essenes, who eventually left Jerusalem and went out to the Dead Sea and wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. You had the Indomians, a very minor party, and then you had the Zealots. So you had uh, six different political parties. They together made up the Sanhedrin, which was the temple rulers in a very broad sense. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life and what you will eat or about your body and what you will wear. For life is more than food and body more than clothing. Notice the ravens. They do not sow or reap and they have neither storehouses nor barns. Yet God feeds them. How much more important are you than the birds? Can any of you worry, worrying, can any of you by worrying add a moment to your lifespan? If even the smallest things are beyond your control, why are you anxious about the rest? Notice also the flowers, how the flowers grow. 
They do not spin or toil, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. So if God so clothed the grass in the field that grows today and is thrown into the oven tomorrow, will he not much more provide for you, O little, you of little faith? So as for you, do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, or do not worry any more. All the nations of the world seek for these things, but your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all of these things will be given to you besides. So do not be afraid any longer, little flock, for your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your belongings and give alms. Provide money bags for yourselves that do not wear out, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven that no thief can reach nor moth can destroy. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. I think this is one of the most beautiful um, teachings that Christ could give any disciple, then or now. Because it shows the love of God for the disciple. The love of God for the human being, the creation. Uh, now, even that, though it says, you know, not a hair in your head is going to be forgotten and you're not going to have any problems, he doesn't really mean physical problems. Again, we've talked over and over about the Bible being written on both a physical or earthly level and on a spiritual level. Because what saint can you think of that never had any problems? Anybody think of a saint that had no problems? Uh, no, I would dare say he had lots of problems. Um, yeah, all the saints had problems. Uh, health problems, opposition of all kinds. Uh, many of them, for example, St. John of the Cross was beaten up by his own bishop and thrown into prison. Um, you just had all kinds of, of stories to tell about many of the saints. Uh, if they didn't have a lot of opposition, then they suffered a great amount of physical problems or mental problems, whatever. So we don't get out of this world alive. Okay, But it's important that we get out of this world with our spiritual life intact. That is what Christ is trying to teach us throughout all of the Bible. It is the spiritual side that is most important. Let's go over to uh, page 90 here, and then we will call it a night. A cause of division. After a lot of preaching, Christ says, I have come to set the earth on fire, and how I wish it were already blazing. There is a baptism with which I must be baptized, and how great is my anguish until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to establish peace on the earth? No, 
I tell you, but rather division. From now on, a household of five will be divided, three against two and two against three. A father will be divided against his son and a son against father. A mother against her daughter and a daughter against her mother. A mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and a daughter-in-law against her mother. What does all of that mean? If we go on, I think it kind of answers itself in a way. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you will say immediately that it is going to rain. And so it does. And when you notice that the wind is blowing from the south, you say that it is going to be hot. And so it is, you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. So why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The present time, as I said, was a time of turmoil. And it was a pot that was just beginning to boil. What Christ was doing was trying to change the Jewish people's mind to a more simple lifestyle and a simple way of worshiping God and following God. And what he was doing was he was converting some people, but not the others. And those who he was not converting were growing further and further away from him so that he was causing a division, which didn't really come to boil until after the resurrection. And as we go on, if we go on to the uh, Acts of the Apostles, we will see how this turmoil developed into a persecution. And that is what he's talking about as the fire. The fire, it was actually not a fire <coughs> um, that burns things up, but it was a fire of anguish because within these divisions of people who accepted Christ and those who didn't would be families, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, you know, one on one side, one on the other. And you can see the problems that that developed. And yet Christ is saying that those who follow me and live according to the simple life that I'm leading out, laying out, will lead into eternal life. But those who reject me are taking their chances. He doesn't say, and I don't say, that just because you don't accept Christ, you're all going to go to hell. No. That's not our place. It's not my place to say that. But it's questionable as to whether you can do that. How can you reject the Son of God and still expect to live with the Son of God for all eternity? That's the question I kind of want to leave with you tonight. A question that should be given a lot of answers and thought, and time. Again, I say, how can you expect to reject the Son of God and then expect to live 
with God for all eternity. Those people who do not accept Christ and live in accordance with his teachings have that to answer. You're right, you're right, but from my own personal experience, I was born during the Depression, and I came from a very large family. My parents suffered the same things that are going on today, but they never let us forget that God is the most important thing in our life. And so it has to be a balance. They didn't have us on our knees all the time. But there were times when I started peddling papers at eight or nine years old for three cents a paper a week or something like that. Uh, and we had to live off of uh, welfare for a few of those years. But the thing that held us together was our knowledge that God loved us and our parents loved us. And therefore, we never, as children at that age, ever realized that we were poor and that we didn't have enough to go out and do the, some of the things that we really wanted to do. It never dawned on us that we were deprived. Yes. By all means. By all means. Yes. Uh, yes, Lucy. Contemplative prayer. That is the highest level of prayer that one can engage in. And it is a prayer where you don't really do much of anything except ask God to take you into his presence. It is something that very few of us will ever be able to reach. But it is there. And many of the saints were masters of contemplative prayer. All right. So if you never reach that, don't feel left out. Because most people don't get that far. All right. But it's a beautiful form of prayer. Yes, William, last, last question. Everybody is called to be a saint. Everyone. No one is excluded. It's getting there that uh, is the problem. With that, let's end our class. Lord, we thank you for this time together. Unfortunately, we spent uh, a little more time on prayer than I really wanted to, but I think it was an important subject. And I would like all of you to take it to heart and spend some thought, some time in thinking about it. But we ask your blessing on our efforts, Lord, as we go forward, not only <clears throat> in reading the scriptures, but trying to apply them, trying to let them sink into our mind and our heart uh, so that they become part of us. We ask your blessing on our efforts, and we just give you praise and thanksgiving in all things. In Jesus' name.